Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Bring. We don't need you to do that. We've got the bring. Oh, but I like doing it. Uh, fine, fine, do it. Fine, good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You're quite welcome. You know, it's not all about you, Whitney. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's actually about our listeners. That's right. So thank you, everybody. <laughs> uh, this is We've Got Mail. This is the podcast in which Whitney Seibold and I, I, William Bibiani, Everyone calls me Bibbs. Uh, we respond to your letters. <laughs> if you could see his posing when he said that. <laughs> Hands on the hips, shoulders shoulders back, head held high. Now, arms akimbo. Yeah, this is the letters show where we do letters. And they're your letters, and we thank you for that. Uh, you can email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Many people do. And uh, you can uh, respond to our various podcasts, Critically Acclaimed, Cancel Too Soon, The Two Shot, maybe even some of our exclusive Patreon podcasts, if that's your bag. Um, and uh, Or you can just ask us about other stuff. Ask us for advice. Ask us for help on your term paper. We won't do it for you. <laughs> no, we won't do your term paper for you. No, we won't. But you can ask, I guess. Um, and uh, no, Not even for 50 bucks, wink. No. No, I'm kidding. Good. Uh... No, we get a lot of people who clearly have assignments. Uh, but that's fine, too. That's also mm. fun. We we just want to communicate with you, keep the dialogue open. You know, we close every one of our critically acclaimed episodes with everyone's a critic, and we mean that. Mm. We're all part of the dialogue around film and TV and art and everything. And if you want to ask us about unrelated stuff, that's fine, too. What what What's your favorite color necktie? I don't know. Ask give, ask Hawaiian. us for ask us for fashion advice. It's going to be bad fashion. Advice. Oh, we are We're terrible film critics. Yeah, we don't. <laughs> when was we don't last, do this. Well, I was going to say when was the last time you saw a well dressed film critic? But there's some cr- film critics out there. Have a really good game. There's a handful. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of Gray Drake. She's oh, a yeah. fashion icon. Yeah, no, done, yeah. easy. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, so yeah, you can email us about whatever you want. This is your time, and we're just going to dive right in. Whitney, mm-hmm. read us a letter. Here is a letter from John. Hi, Hi John. John. Now, um. As I have, I say in all these letter episodes, uh, I will read whatever you sign off as. I'm not going to read your name out of the subject line. Yeah. If you don't sign off, I'm just going to assume you don't want your name read on the air. Yep. So your, your name will be name redacted. Uh, this one is from John. Hi, John. Hi, John. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, if you want to see a Terminator living out the 30 or whatever years in the past, this is about Terminator Dark Fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make it to the present, watch Terminator the Saracona Chronicles. Ah, oh, yeah. Good point. Which will never appear on Cancel Too Soon as it had two seasons. Oh. I know. It's too bad. Well, yeah. I guess I'll never see it. Uh, <laughs> specifically, episode two, uh, season two, episode 11, Self-Made Man, wherein, minor spoiler, a Terminator has a mission to the, quote, present of 2010, possibly in a meta joke, to assassinate the governor of California. Ha. Uh, unfortunately, he arrives in the 1920s and has to take the slow path. Oh, that's, uh, that's a fun idea. In the episode. Okay, so they they send a Terminator back in time, but they send him to the wrong era. Yeah, like there was a there was a glitch on the digital readout, like in that movie Spirit of '76. Okay, you ever see Spirit of '76? That's the the Disney film, right? No, 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 no. Spirit of '76 is a low budget comedy about a dystopian future. In which I believe it's David Cassidy and Olivia Dabo hmm. are from a dystopian future in which there is no law and order or rhyme or reason, and they are they've built a time machine to go back in time 
and to bring back the Constitution to give people just some order and structure. Oh, I think I remember this. So they're supposed to go back to 1776, which is, of Mm. course, bad history because the Constitution wasn't written until quite a bit later. (laughs) Uh, Also, the Constitution's kind of fucked up in some ways when it first Mm. got started. But uh, in any case, they end up – there's a thing missing on their digital readout. So they don't realize that they're actually going to 1976. Oops. And then they end up ending up in a uh, 1970s – Comedy full of 1970s jokes about Pac-Man. And, oh, jeez. Uh, no, no. It's actually quite what, funny. Wait, when was this made? 89, 90. Okay, that sounds awful. No, no. It's actually funnier than you think. <laughs> I'm dead serious. It is right. funnier than you'd think. Um, Sofia Coppola did the costumes. No kidding. Yeah. Weird little uh, little thing there. I think, I think a Roman Coppola worked on it as well. Might have, like, hmm. co-written it or something like that. And, uh, and Francis Ford Coppola directed. So, <laughs> no. No. But uh, but no, it's a surprisingly funny comedy. It's got some good bits in it. The the sense of humor I think is in the right place for the most part. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, bit of a bit of a cultural curiosity. Anyway, I digress. That just reminded me of that. Oh, okay, that's fine. That's I don't get the, a lot of reasons to talk about Spirit, Spirit of Seventy Six. <laughs> no, and as, as I said on our Terminator episode, the, the Terminator sequels just need to be the same picture over and over again, kind of like Back to the Future, where we just go back to earlier and earlier eras. Well, that was the premise of Terminator Genesis. We did. The, I, it always amuses me how many mm. people say like, "We got to, we just got to do this," and I'm mm. like, "That was Terminator Salvation, and you didn't like it." Well, mm. yeah, but what if we do this? That was Terminator Genesis. You didn't like it. Well, the Terminator Genesis was like within the timeline we already. Knew. I'm talking about going back before every film progressed, like going backward and yeah, they progressively. did because that. that was one of the things that we saw in Terminator Genesis was that a Terminator went back to try to kill Sarah Connor as when she, a kid. Yeah, when she was a kid and, and yeah. ended up like raising her. Uh, that was that was the start of it. It would have kept going back, but it didn't. But like no, you know, so, that was the no, start. Not Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor's mom. Sarah Connor's great grandmother. Well, start with all Sarah Connor as a kid and he moved backwards. But make the whole movie that. That's all my right. point. Don't do this whole sort of like. And John Connor is also a Terminator. That and we're like all a building. Joke, and we're building time machines in the sewers. And, but at yeah. that point, at that point, like Sarah Connor, like the different Sarah Connors throughout time, become like the Roadrunner and the Terminator is the Coyote. Like you'll <laughs> never get her. You'll never get her. It's so yeah. ironic. I can see that as a cartoon. Mm-hmm. It'd be kind of fun. I, Moving on. Also, is that, that, was that the end of the, the email? That, that's the end. They just wanted, wanted well, to let us know that. That, that one of our ideas had been done in the TV series. One of the things that I have encountered as the conversation around Terminator Dark Fate has mm. continued um, is oh, there's a lot of love for Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Like a lot of people really got yeah. into that show, dug it. I watched the first few episodes and didn't fall for it, but it sounds like it got better as it went along. Mm. So one of these days I might actually you know sit down and actually watch that whole thing Mm -hmm. because i do like the terminator movies i like the franchise so at that point the other thing i've discovered is that a lot of people think terminator one and two are quote apolitical unquote like Uh this franchise didn't get political until terminator dark fate made it all about women uh okay well you have not been paying attention well first of all why is making a film about women like, that's the one thing you're noticing about this. Mm-hmm. But also, they were always about women. Mm-hmm. They were always about women. They were always about the persecution of women. The first film is literally about men fighting over a woman's reproductive system. That's literally <laughs> the plot. That's not even subtext. That's the plot. They're also about nuclear proliferation, mm-hmm. Cold War anxiety, uh, the dangers of unethical rampant capitalism. These are all really uh, surface te- elements. Te- techno fear. It's all there. Yeah, it's just it weirds me out that like because you didn't pick up on the subtext when you were eight, you assume there can't possibly be. 
I think there's a tendency uh, in certain circles to take every film as literally as possible. Yeah. Um, here's the thing about films. Even though you know a, a filmmaker was going to write the text and they're going to have a subtext in their mind. Yeah, whether, whether or not they've been planted. Yeah. You're a person. You care yeah, they're, about things. They're putting something in it that – like ideas in it that they may not be conscious of even. Mm-hmm. And even when they make it – the things they're consciously and unconsciously putting into it might switch around a little bit because, you know, it's a big, long process making a feature film. Mm-hmm. Other so people the, might yeah. have other ideas and, and then that goes into it. it's yeah. going to be released into a certain environment, like year, years after you started, sometimes a decade after you wrote the first draft. Yeah. So all of these factors are coming into play into sort of the political life of every feature film. Yeah. That's all. Well, well the other thing I think is, it's, I just want to make it clear, it's okay if you only want to engage with art superficially, I think you're missing out, but you can. There's mm. really nothing you know, wrong with it. It's just what I disapprove of is the idea that because I don't engage with art on a deeper level, because I am not activating the reading comprehension part of my brain when I absorb pop cinema, mm. that there cannot be anything deeper than what I see. That's the part I disagree with. Yeah. Other people are talking about how this movie is political and has interesting thoughts and ideas in its mind, maybe even things we disagree with. Uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't exist just because you don't want to engage with it. Yeah. That's my last thought on the matter. It, it ins- well, you don't want to engage with it, and you insist that other people also don't engage that's, with it. That's and, the level that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. When it's When it's you saying that this movie isn't political... No, that says a lot more about you than it does mm. about anyone else because the rest of us can see a lot mm. of things about it. Anyway. I, was I was trying to think of, like, a, I remember we were trying to think of a film that, like, just doesn't have a politic to it at all. Every film does, but, like, yeah. what's what's really, like, only the surface-level stuff? What's the most surface-level movie we've ever encountered? That's an interesting film. The, on, the only one I could think of was Magic Mike XXL, <laughs> which is <laughs> about, it's it's about a bun- bunch of hunky guys who say, why don't we have some fun on a road trip? And they have some fun on a road trip. And then the movie ends. <laughs> and, a, and a bunch of ladies are turned on, and a bunch of hot guys have their shirts off. And, and that Amber, sounds great. Amber Heard has a conversation, and Joe Manganiello stops at a gas station and pours water on his chest. Sold. I still can't and believe I haven't seen this film, actually. All of that sounds it's, it's great It's pretty astonishing, actually. Because <laughs> I actually really like the first Magic Mike. Yeah, but the first Magic Mike is very openly about uh, economic anxiety. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Uh, it's just funny to me. Okay. Yeah. All right, moving on. Let's do another letter. Here's another letter. This one comes from Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Uh, Hey, gang. The discussion you had about the reactions to the Joker, this was before Joker came out. This is oh, a, bit okay. of an it's older a little bit older. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I object to it, but more on the don't we have enough Batman related bullshit than any moral ground. That being said, the trailer looked massively intriguing, has had me thinking for a couple of days now. I do think that an artist, I'm a published fiction writer, so I have a horse in this race, okay. uh, should say whatever he wants to an audience as long as he's willing to accept the reaction, good or ill, the audience has to his message. Uh, I may find Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built stupefying and ill-conceived, and I'll say it to his face, he'd probably be delighted, but I wouldn't stop him from showing it. I may think Eli Roth's body of work is that of an immature poseur who thinks he's edgy the way a child's, uh, the child saying fuck for the first time is, <laughs> and I have said this to his face. Wow! But I'm not going to stop him from trying to communicate with his audience, and I will defend him from those who think his, uh, his access to the general public should be cut off. Okay. Uh, however, I do think that an artist's message is misinterpreted and that he, she uh, should not take as much heat for that. 
uh, when when an artist's message is misinterpreted. Yeah, that, okay. As as much as I despise how, let's say, Scarface is held up as an aspirational film by uh, the hip hop community, uh-huh. I can't put all the blame on De Palma for that. Though some of it comes from the artistic uh, dissonance of his and Oliver Stone's styles clashing so much. I think the hailing of Joel Schumacher's tone deaf falling down as some call to arms is not his fault either, and neither are his Batman films, uh, where he was working for uh, as a work for hire director for the studio who wanted toyetic films. I think the weird public perception of the Joker-slash-Harley relationship as one to be emulated is so not the fault of that relationship's creator as Paul Dini, Mm -hmm. the creator of Harley Quinn, um, or co-creator of Harley Quinn, never flinched at showing that it was unhealthy and abusive. At some point, we have to acknowledge that the piece of art itself is a neutral item until it is viewed by an audience, and that the message they take away is not always the artist's fault. Hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a weird gray area and your mileage may vary. Uh, all of that's fair. Um, mm-hmm. I, I agree with the vast majority of that. Here's what I'm going to say about the early conversation about the Joker, because a lot of people have been going back and saying, all these people who are worried about the Joker, mm-hmm. you were fools, and you mm-hmm. owe us all an apology, because it really, no one died. And I'm like, yeah, well, people did once. Remember <laughs> when the Dark Knight Rises came out? Like, that was, was kind of a yeah, thing. So there was in Colorado. I, I do think the anxiety wasn't completely unwarranted, but thank goodness no, no, nothing terribly negative has come out of it yet. That part's great. Um, and you and I are not fans of the Joker, and that's mm. fine. A lot of people are. We just don't see what you see, or mm. if we see it, we don't think it's enough. I think one thing we need to talk about about that pre-release concern over the content of the Joker is that there is an enormous difference between looking at a trailer and responding to what trailers and advertising and publicity is telling us, and then looking at what the actual film is telling us. Yeah. The film matters more, but the people who make the film and the people who are advertising and marketing the film want us to respond to the trailer. They want us to look at the trailer and go, I got to see that. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the trailer and go, that looks shitty and irresponsible and I have no interest, that's valid. Yeah. We just have to make sure that we're talking about our concerns about what the what the marketing is telling us versus here's what the movie is going to be because we haven't seen the film yet. Some people had seen the film. I do know that some people came out of Venice saying this is a superficial and irresponsible motion picture. And sure enough, I actually agree. Hmm. But a lot of people hadn't, and they were going off of what we had seen. And what we had seen, some people really dug, and some people found disconcerting. I I have to say, the more I think about Joker, the more I kind of enjoy it. I think this is one of those films that uh, if I had seen when I was, like, 17, I would have really, really loved and put it, like, high on my favorites list sort of film. Um, It's it's, it's an introduction for a lot of people to a lot of art house mentalities. That I can can appreciate. And uh, I think... um, you quoted a critic on saying that Joker was trying to make a dorm poster of a movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forgot which critic you were quoting. I also forget offhand, yeah. but I, you could go back to another, I think, a previous Letters episode I talked about this, mm. where they were talking about how a lot of movies that are edgy and have actual real points end up sort of being thrown onto college yeah. dorm rooms as things that are cool, like Fight Club or Scarface. And it seems like with Joker, they tried to make the poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I probably would have been, well, I, I didn't have those types of movie, po- I had stuff like Freaks and Rashomon on my poster. I had, my, uh, Army of Darkness, Nightmare Before Christmas, and Briefly mm. Train Spotting. I had, a um, Mystery Science Theater, Deep Space Nine. Yeah, I was the nerd. Mm. <laughs> like, I had a, a big portrait of the station, Deep Space Nine, up yeah. on my wall. I was, I was always mostly uh, the horror geek. And, uh... 
But uh, I, it, it's an interesting question you're bringing up, Thomas, about how how much responsibility an artist has for a largely negative reaction to their work. Um, a lot of artists are trying to say something... Or a misinterpreted positive or, or, reaction. Yeah, a, mis, a misinterpretation of a work, how much of that is the artist's, uh, quote, fault? And sometimes an artist is trying to make this piece of, you know, this piece of work and they become very, very focused on it. And, you know, they're making this film for a long time, usually. Mm-hmm. You know, m- months, sometimes even years. And they're so hell-bent on a very particular vision that they may not always be stopping, taking a step back and trying to view their work in a larger context or uh, see it the way an outside audience might see it. They're only seeing it in their heads. And this, this, this is why we have those you know, advanced screenings that people complain about so mm-hmm. much is we've been making this film for so long, we don't even know if this comedy is funny or not. Yeah, We yeah. don't know what people who aren't us and aren't already familiar with the material and have literally seen mm-hmm. it dozens of times in the editing room we yeah. don't know what other, how other people are going to react, so we have to show it to them before exactly. we are confident sharing it with the whole world. There, there's that, and you know, there's this notion that you you look at some art, you know, a lot of pop art, for instance, all these big blockbusters. Those are made with an audience in mind. They're trying to sell it to a large number of people. Mm-hmm. But then you look at other films by sort of like quote auteurs, and a lot of those people are making films just to sort of get it out of their own head. They're making it for themselves mm-hmm. and. The people who are making it for the audience, uh, weirdly enough, are the ones that are sort of the blindest to how a mass audience is going to react to it in, on a political realm. Yeah, because they only uh, – a lot of them only want them to be sort of absorbed. Yeah, ma- marketable in, yeah. in some sort of way yeah. uh, ra- rather than you know, meaningful. Uh, whereas the people who are trying to make something meaningful have a point. They're, t- you know, they're not necessarily concerned with a larger context that, or they – understand a larger context and they're trying to put it into that context and to be fair there's overlap Uh, there and mm -hmm. even some occasional exceptions like i would argue that even though black panther for example is made in an entirely blockbuster mentality and setting Mm -hmm. disney wanted to make money they wanted to exploit ryan coogler's ideas and artistry Mm -hmm. to cater to a new audience and make their movie sell they Mm -hmm. wanted their big blockbuster money Ryan Coogler is so talented and had enough free reign that he was able to make a genuinely great motion picture out of it. Yeah. But you don't always get that. And you don't mm. always get someone who has the ability to make that work or the ability to navigate that fine line between marketable enough that the studios dig it while also being personal or thoughtful or smart enough to work beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the example I'm going to cite is actually uh, about sort of the way audiences can take a film and – not necessarily just misinterpret it, but sometimes reclaim it for something that wasn't ne- it was never meant to be. Yeah, uh, think of how somehow the Babadook became a queer icon. Yeah, uh, not exactly sure how. There's no queer themes in that movie. It's not really negative, but it is some somewhat odd. It's it's somewhat yeah that the, that the Babadook, the creature itself, has become a, a gay icon. Uh, I, I'm not sure why. Go for it. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't see the connection, but fine. I haven't read an article um, that made that clear, yeah. But sometimes that can be really, really negative. And I'm thinking of Matt Fury's creation, Pepe the Frog. Pepe the yeah, Frog was meant to be example. just a comic strip. It's just a comic strip character. He has a, a kind of a, an odd, bulgy-eyed style. I like Matt Fury's style. Yeah. But Pepe the Frog, at some point along the way, was scooped up by these like extremist right-wing white supremacist figures... And thrown online as a symbol for their cause. Yeah. Matt Fury had no say in that. He made his work public and people just started taking it, taking his images, not paying him any copyright, I'm guessing. Yeah. And, like if they were paying him to do something else, he would you know, have say in the exchange. Right. He had no say in this exchange, Matt Fury. And 
as such, that he had to retire that character. He couldn't draw that character anymore because it had been taken by the public and turned into something else. Yes, and I so think in fact, in fact thing, it's actually like it's been so clearly codified as something that white supremacists use mm-hmm. in their vernacular, their artistry, uh, that it is now like officially codified as hate speech. Yeah, yeah. He just drew a frog. He, he drew a frog, and it, and for years, you know, Pepe the Frog wasn't anything. Well, it, well, it was a funny cartoon character. I never years. even heard of it. Wasn't anything like to do with white supremacy. Yeah, uh, I'd seen Pepe the Frog previously, and, and in sort of like outsider comic circles that I, I occasionally brushed against. And but, to be uh, clear, Fury has gone on record saying he is he's not happy yeah, about yeah, any yeah. of this, and it's, it and sucks. I I I wonder what uh, someone like De Palma would think about people glorifying uh, Scarface. Because mm-hmm. Scarface clearly is a tragedy. He's a tragic figure, but he's very energetic. Right. The the violence is very exciting, but it's not meant to be seen as heroic. Well, there's I mean, it's a difficult conversation to have mm-hmm. because there's a lot of extremes. For example, you know, one person misinterprets Catcher in the Rye, and all of a mm-hmm. sudden, J.D. Salinger mm-hmm. is like six degrees of Kevin Bacon responsible for the death of John Lennon. Yeah. I don't, I'm not saying I think he is responsible, but I also understand that that would probably be a hell of a lot to deal with as an artist. Mm. That someone read my book, got something really weird out of it, and did something horrible. Mm-hmm. That's got to suck. I think that there is something that we do need to discuss regarding this idea of uh, interpretation or misinterpretation of art. Art is an attempt by an artist to communicate something. Mm. How they see the world. In the best of circumstances. And I I think in general, I think it's it's you, even if it's as simple as I like the way this looks and I want people to see the way this looks Mm -hmm. and see that I, and and go along with me on this and say this looks good. That's that's trying to communicate with the world. Mm -hmm. That's trying to share your perspective, your ideas, your taste with the world. And this is one of the reasons why, although craft isn't necessarily necessary to become a great artist. You don't need to have taken classes or gone mm. to school. You can create great art on your own. Some people do. But when you learn that much of the craft, what you can do is you can start refining and making sure that the way you communicate your art is clear yeah. to the audience. And so that's you're minimizing the likelihood that they will misinterpret your intention. Mm-hmm. Sometimes this makes art very boring because it's so clear well, and blunt. Because, well, and, you, what you're describing is something very anodyne, and art, yeah. art is everything. It's not just this one anodyne I agree. communication. I agree. I'm, I, this is only mm-hmm. one aspect of it. I'm not saying this is all there is to art. I'm just saying this is one element of art, mm-hmm. is a certain amount of clarity. And if you are concerned about your art being misinterpreted, if your art has been misinterpreted, you may look at it as, I guess I wasn't clear enough. Mm-hmm. I guess my intentions weren't clear enough in the text that maybe I should look at that as some form of criticism. I think that's an element. It's a part of the conversation. It's a part of the conversation some people flat out disagree with. They think that level of it is wrong or should be simply intuitive and that's fine. I just think it's something that people don't discuss a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's an instinctual thing. A lot of people, audiences just sort of go to a, a, a film or absorb a piece of art and they're getting more than you know, they might consciously be aware of. They might be absorbing something about this piece of art that they don't really understand themselves. Right. Like, but uh, they're getting something, and I think there's just the assumption that everybody else is getting the same thing. Right. And there's also the assumption that everyone else is like – yeah, they're getting the same thing, but they're also like receiving messages meant for them. Like we were talking mm. about on the most recent episode of uh, The Two Shot, which will come out actually the same day. 
know uh, this, this episode. Uh, but we're talking about the Critters movies. And we're talking about Critters 1 and the way that the older sister is portrayed in Critters 1. Because the main character is like a 13-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And he's got an older sister who's like 17, 18. And they have an antagonistic relationship. as she's seen as kind of annoying to him. And if you're the 13-year-old boy in the audience, you're going to pick up on that and go, Well, I guess that's just what lo- older sisters are like. Especially if you don't have one. Mm-hmm. You just accept that as part of the narrative. But imagine if you're the older sister and you're watching going, hey, fuck you. <laughs> it's not, we're not all picking up the same things. And the way that types of people are portrayed mm-hmm. in art and cinema rubs off on people, yeah. especially if they don't have a lot of personal experience with those people. And that's how we get things mm-hmm. like xenophobic propaganda and how that can feed into yeah. a lot of movies and in the way that movies portray people as either being erased from narratives. They do not exist in this universe or well, they're portrayed they're only in a, villains, only yeah. villains or only uh, existing within uh, familiar and negative stereotypes, even if they're not technically villains. That mm-hmm. matters. People yeah. get stuff out mm-hmm. of that, whether or not they're, and whether or not they're consciously embracing it, they're learning to accept it because it's just in all the movies. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. dangerous. Mm-hmm. It matters. Right. Uh, let's read another letter. Let's do. All right. Because I, I could go off. No, right. these, these are big yeah, topics these, of conversation. Big... And we only just brushed the surface. Read art criticism. Read Marshall yeah. McLuhan. Read all mm-hmm. these awesome people uh, uh, who've written about stuff yeah, like I want, this. I want to recommend A.O. Scott's book, Better Living Through Criticism. It's really, to really, that. really good. Good tome on uh, just sort of approaching art. You keep bragging. You yeah. keep you keep, but not bragging. Bragging. You, you, I, didn't, I didn't write it. <laughs> I, I'm bragging about reading this book. You keep telling me how good this book is. It's, I need it's to a good book. Yeah. Okay. Um, here's a letter from Hayden. Hello, Hayden. Oh, um, one of our many Haydens. One of our Haydens. Uh, hello. Call me weak-willed. I'm not going to do that. No, you're great. Uh, but sitting down in a seat for three hours makes my butt hurt. <laughs> With the region's surge in big and small films reaching or exceeding three hours in length, I plea for theaters studios to bring back intermissions. Yeah. Many think intermissions break up the flow of a film, but I disagree. One, as long as the filmmakers know where there will be an intermission, they can successfully structure a story where an organic break can be placed similar to how many classic Hollywood epics usually have drawn a clear division in the plot. True. Two, an intermission can give the audience a window to take it all in and get excited to watch the second half. The only reason why I'm slightly hesitant to see The Irishman in theaters is because I know there isn't an intermission. Not to say it's going to be bad because it's over three hours long, but because it's a huge time commitment when there are no breaks. In actuality, what sold me on going to see Satan Tango later this month is because there are going to be two intermissions. There you go. How long is Satan Tango? Seven hours. Um, I think it's exactly seven hours. I have to look it up. Uh, yeah, it's films uh, just historically from the beginning of the medium until now have been slowly getting longer. Yeah, there have been studies. It's just sort of the average length of a, f- of a film, and I think we finally uh, cracked over two hours. Oh, uh, just a, just an average, like no, about think, about like five or six years ago. I, rem- I remember that being cracked, maybe closer to fifteen or twenty. But regardless, oh, it's, right. it's, it's, I remember seeing articles in the LA uh, Times about this, like every year yeah. they would revisit it and just see how okay. long was the average movie last year. And I think it just about cracked two thousand around two, th- uh, two hours around two thousand. Oh, okay, um, I could be wrong, but, but that's yeah, how I remember. There, there's a lot of long films this year. The Irishman is three and a half hours. The biggest blockbuster of the year was three hours long. Yeah. Uh, I, I've already seen Terrence Malick's new film. That one's three hours long. Uh, there was a film that came out earlier this year, an Argentinian film called La Flor, which is 14 hours long. Uh, I have always appreciated a film that takes its damn time. Mm. Uh, I th- 
uh, I, I always fall back on an old uh, adage of Roger Ebert. He said, uh, no good film is too long and no bad film is short enough. Uh, if you're engrossed, if you're engaged in a film, if it's good, uh, then you'll probably vanish into it a little bit. Now, yeah, you, the passage of time it's, won't it's, affect you so much won't, because won't you're you as much, Yeah, because you're, you're excited to stay in the room with the movie. Yeah. Um, I always, no matter how long a film is, I always feel the passage of time. I'm always aware that I'm in a theater and I'm sitting on my ass, like, okay, let's get on with it. Uh, even if the film's 80 minutes, like, okay, let's pick up the pace a little. Uh, sometimes I don't say, let's pick up the pace a little because I can't catch my breath. I'm watching Speed Racer. Slow down! Slow down! Slow down! <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, as for the intermission, I feel like... There was a time uh, – I'm watching a lot of the Best Picture nominees from the, the mid-30s right now. Yeah, for our podcast, and only the best, which is exclusive to Patreon. A, a lot of them are opera-heavy. Yeah. There's at least three, I think, that are based in opera mm-hmm. or based on an opera or about opera singers. So far, and, anyway, yeah. And opera, of course, is a massively epic art form. Uh, grand opera is has fallen out of favor in recent years. I guess it's seen as like – too too long, too dull, too too bourgeois, retro. too yeah, too retro, uh, and opera always lent itself to intermissions and breaks because the stories usually took a really really long time. You can go see the entire Ring Cycle over the t- course of like two days. Yeah. Like some people put on Wagner's Ring Cycle like in repertory, and they, they're always it, it's a multi day affair right. because these operas are hugely long, and of course the singer can't sing for that long. No, yeah, they, the so, singer needs a break in that case. Yeah. yeah. This is why opera is so impressive. Those singers are singing sometimes for like four or five hours. And they're not always mic'd. Like, you know, now Mm. we get... I remember when I was a kid and I was going through theater school and they're like, okay, so we we might have to mic some of you. I'm like, oh, you guys, come on. It's not that big a theater. Like, I had learned to sing from the diaphragm from a very young age. (laughs) But, like, these are opera singers. They can do that. Yeah. But, uh... My point being, Hollywood started to take, when they first started making movies, uh, took a lot of theatrical traditions. That's why you'll see a lot of really stagey acting and big makeup in old silent movies. Yeah. Because they were taking directly from the closest analog they had at the time, which was theater. So they have, like, big exaggerated eye makeup, big gigantic beards, and the acting style would be really exaggerated because they're used to playing to the back of a room. Yeah. The camera's right there now. They don't need to do that. Well, close-ups weren't necessarily, like, the cinematic language that we take for granted took a bit to codify, you Mm -hmm. know? It took a bit to realize we could show a wide shot and then cut to a Mm close-up. That didn't... Well, that wasn't invented immediately. That took a little bit. Yeah, and uh, look at look at the films of Melies. It's always like far away. You can see the whole stage. Yeah, it's, it's like a little diorama of yeah. Melies. That's uh, brilliant. But like, it's just it's it's limited yeah. a little bit by the visual vocabulary we had of live performance. Yeah. A, a lot of people credit Mary Pickford for being kind of the inventor of film acting. Somebody who could act to an audience that was like right there next to you and yeah. kind of change acting the whole acting style to fit this new art form, hence making the entire art form change. Yeah, Mary Pickford's very important. Look her up. But uh, founded United Artists, she's great. Um, but I think going forward, even to today, a lot of Hollywood was really, or I guess going through at least the golden age when they started making those big epics in like the late fifties. Yeah, well, slightly uh, earlier, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, 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 but um, there was still this sort of gigantic theatrical idea in the filmmakers' minds of what a, what cinema ought to be. Cinema ought to be like an opera. It ought to be like a gigantic theatrical production that you would dress up and go out to see. It would be a very special evening. Uh, it wasn't just sort of like quick pop entertainment that you can consume. It was that too, 
But when it came to like the bigger Hollywood quote epics, the prestige then, pictures, yeah, the yeah, ones yeah. that were like vaunted those, and important, yeah, those, in capital those, letters, those had overtures and they had entractas and they had exit music. There was sometimes even live orchestras. They tried to make it big and bombastic and theatrical, and I think at some point, maybe in the 1970s, that fell away. Yeah. When everything, like, everyone was just sort of going through a financial crisis. Uh, <laughs> I'm the, the, the world was no longer clean. There was a war in Vietnam. Everything was really sort of pushed down was, and restrained what aesthetically. What was the last major motion picture? Like, mm-hmm. ma- not like, sorry, I was saying, but like, major, mm-hmm. giant, big, epic prestige film that had an unironic, totally mm-hmm. organic, planned from the beginning intermission. Was it um, Hamlet? No, my boss's film, The Hateful Eight, a couple of years ago, had an intermission. Did he have did, an intermission? He did a roadshow edition. Okay, but that's a roadshow edition. I mean, like, there the were two actual di- There were two main... different cuts. True, and, but and I'm talking did about... One with, uh, did one with an intermission. Okay, granted, but I'm talking about, like, always from, like, you know, this is the only version of it. Like, mm. I think Brand- Brandis Hamlet had an intermission, That, that was 96. There's got to be one that was more recent. You would think, that. right? I but think like, was. But then before Hamlet, there still weren't a lot for, like, mm. at least through from the 70s onward. Yeah. They'd fallen really out of favor. I have a theory about that. Um, that in addition to uh, wanting to fit in more like movie screenings in a day, the intermission just takes up time. And, but but that's uh, concessions time. It is concessions yeah. time. You would think the theaters would be all over that. Uh, I have a theory that intermissions really started to fall out of favor as people started smoking less. Oh, that's entirely possible. Uh, two hour, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying this is a big part of it, but I bet it made it seem a little less necessary when your audience doesn't need, like, ah, oh, I need to go have a smoke. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, oh, it's well, been two and a half they're hours. They're all addicted to nicotine. Yeah, I, like, I smoke theater. a carton a day, okay? Mm-hmm. I need at least two at intermission. Like, that's something that might have been... That, that's me spitballing. No, that, that, I don't that, know that's, if that's That's probably entirely likely. I mean, I might, it might be a factor, but... Um, yeah, no, we started think, getting... Uh, since since uh, Hamlet, there was also Dougville. Dougville had an intermission. I don't remember that. For Lars von Trier's film. Oh, I don't remember. Right. I've seen it. I just remember having an intermission. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I think it's interesting because the most successful movies lately, mm-hmm. financially successful blockbusters, have tended to be that long. And I think part of it is because people see, listen, we're paying the same ticket price for twice as much movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the Bollywood approach now. Yeah, yeah, which is actually fine. I'm fine with it. Um, I know some people, you know, have bladder issues and don't want to have to leave to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so you will do. Mm. I get it. I, I seem to be fine right now. Give me a decade or two. I might have a problem in that regard as well. But I got through all of the Irishmen without, you know, needing to scoot away for a bit. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, listen, it's a conversation that we need to have. Films are responsible for capturing your attention over a specific period of time. They're not a book where you're supposed to put, take them... Put them oh. down and pick them up again because we don't expect you to get through no. all of Anna Karenina in one sitting. It's cool if you can, yeah. but we don't Cin- expect that of you. Cinema is the only art form that deals with time that Well, I guess radio as well. Oh, theater. So, the, anything re- pre-recorded. Well, fair enough. Th- theater, an actor can take as long as they like. True, but the point is the audience is stuck there until it's over. So that's true. You, know, you can leave if you want, but like mm. theoretically you're stuck there until it's over. Mm. We have to capture your attention from the point where it begins to the point where it ends. Well. If, that, if it's your goal, well, <laughs> to I think, capture attention. Well, if, if mm. your goal is to bore you so that you leave, I guess that's interesting. But it's I've, a bit too avant garde, I think. I've, I've seen productions like that. that Fair enough. Try, I, try to push you away. I think the majority, but even pushing you away becomes like a gauntlet. Like we dare you to watch. Yeah, yeah. 
and that's grabs the attention of a certain demographic. That's the audience for it. But the, like the human centipede effect. But there there does come a time where no matter how good the movie is, you might be pushing it a bit. <laughs> I, I really love the Irishman, but yeah, shave, shave it. Shave it's it a, little, a little bit. It's a little long, the Irishman, and I like it a lot. But it feels like there's a bit in the middle we don't really need. <laughs> and sometimes when you look at a movie, it's like, oh, it's a bit long. Well, what do you cut? I don't know. Because mm. sometimes it's not easy. It's not like an extraneous scene. It's just little bits and bobs here and there. Yeah. This scene could end five seconds earlier. This scene, mm. technically we don't need it because the information's later and so on and so forth. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like I could cut down the Irishman. Mm. I'm, I'm not going to tell a film shoemaker what to do. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like we could have a conversation with her. Be like, here's what I think is, is a little long. I've, I, I've said what I would cut out of uh, Avengers Endgame. There's well, a, yeah, what was that? I remember. Well, there's there's the scene where it's like, okay, we figured out we can travel backward in time without interrupting the timeline. Here's the rules: no interruptions. Okay, but causality doesn't exist in this universe. Mm-hmm. We can just go back in time, grab up the magic gems, bring them back, and bring everybody back to life. And uh, my idea would be to they vanish and then they instantly reappear. We see none of the flashback stuff. That's not. That's fun. like that's like an hour of film. No, that, cut all that out. That's the, that's missing the and point then, of the and movie. Then we, and then we just sort of have a recap of all that stuff. Listen, I would love to see that fan edit. I would love to see that fan edit. The point of the movie is just to sort of give the people who have been paying attention this whole time. Uh, like references to all the, the other familiar things, recontextualizing a lot of these scenes that they'd seen in previous movies. It's the Back to the Future Part Two approach. Yeah, yeah. We're like, oh, all of this stuff you saw before, yeah. but now this was also happening. Isn't I'd, that fun? Actually, yes. I'd, I'd, I'd just cut straight back to the story. None of this recontextualization nonsense. I would zip pop. They're back. I would love that fan edit. <laughs> I would love to watch. It's like, that wait a minute. Where's Black Widow? I have such a story. <laughs> Like just, just, just have that, you know, just like recap it a little bit in dialogue and then move on. Like I think that would be in sort of like a fun, uh, kind of co- colder but more uh, engaging way. I think to en- yeah. engage with that material. Anyway, let's move on. But I'm a cold bastard, so <laughs> I was the one who was like kind of giggling to himself when everybody was melting at the end of Infinity War. Anyway, uh, here's a letter from Robert S. Hello, Robert S. Hi, uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney. Hello, guys. Thanks you. Thank you for taking my letter. Oh, of course. Yeah. Send them in. I've been a fan of yours since episode one of Critically Acclaimed. I have wow. definitely become fans of you both. Uh, uh, Thank a you. A few bullet point items before I get to my question. Um, mm. I wanted to point out that I am a conservative male that listens to your show uh, as I get ready to preach on Sunday mornings. Oh, wow. I make note of this uh, not to shock, nor is it what I ident- identify myself by. I only mention it so that you know your critiques and commentary resonate with someone who has a very different worldview than yourselves. Well, that's nice to hear. Well, thank, thank you. Yeah, thanks for that's, writing in. That's um, actually really, really nice to hear. Thank you for that. Regardless uh, of some of my disagreements with some of your beliefs and opinions, I still love listening to you both because you are both well-spoken with well-educated and well-thought-out ideas that are very informative to me. I would love to sit and chat with both of you about films, uh, even though we might not agree on much, except that Treasure Planet has the best Long John Silver. Yes! Thank you for that. I think that would be a great time. Thank you. I'm so glad someone agrees with me on uh, that. I also wanted to tell you both that I've been doing some broadening of my film knowledge, thanks to you guys. Cool. Uh, Bibbs, many months back, you said that if you wanted to learn film by going through the entire filmography of a director, and you used Steven Spielberg as an example, I wanted to inform you that I've taken this advice and been slowly going through Spielberg's filmography of the films I have not seen. So far, I've seen Munich, Catch Me If You Can, the BFG, and Schindler's List. I got to see Schindler's List in theaters last year for its 25th anniversary. It was absolutely amazing. I still need to see War Horse, The Terminal, Amistad, Tintin, The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, 1941, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay. Uh, Which of these should I attempt to see first? Ah, that's Uh, a good question. 
Uh, lastly, some of the films I saw in your recommendations. Uh, Bibbs, I saw Damsel, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Until Pattinson exited the film, and then it lost me. Great first half, though. A Simple Favor is now one of my new favorite movies. Okay. Thank you for the recommendation. I love A Simple Favor. Yep. I've also now seen The Guest twice. Great, <laughs> great recommendation. Uh, let's see. Let's stop here and recommend uh, your, your Spielberg recommendation. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, real, real fast. So, um, sorry I didn't care for Damsel after Pattinson left. I think that's when the movie finally picks up. Mm. I think Pattinson's really wonderful, but I think that when Pattinson exits the film, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody, is when the film finally reveals what it really thinks of Pattinson's <laughs> character and what mm. it's all really about, and I find that very exciting. Mm. So, uh, sorry I didn't get that out of it. I think that's great, but we can disagree. Uh, as for Spielberg, I'm trying to remember, what was the list of films that Let's he see, had? Uh, War Horse, The Terminal, Amistad, Tintin, Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, 41, and uh, Closing Counters. Um, I mean, it's tricky because I think there are some really great films on that list and also some not-so-great films on yeah. that list. Well, and I don't, I, want think... to, I don't want you to save all the, the not-so-great films for the end. I think if you're coming off of Schindler's List, I think it's a really fascinating thought exercise to put that one right next to War Horse. Because Spielberg has had a very... Uh, kind of push and pull relationship with war over yeah. the course of his career. He used to, like you look at something like I actually haven't seen 1941 but that's a comedy. It is. And then, I think it's an underrated comedy actually. I'm about to have a conversation about that. But then uh, then he makes an adventure film about war with Raiders of the Lost Ark which is about, you know, brave American he's not a soldier but he functionally he's an American soldier yeah. who uh faces off against the Nazi regime mm-hmm. and uses the power of a Jewish artifact to kill them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So pretty great. There, there's some <laughs> themes there. Woo! Uh, then he goes on and makes Schindler's List, which is a very tragic, very harrowing look at World War II. Well, you're skipping a few because he did Empire no. of the Sun in there as well, and he did okay. uh, whatever. But there's I'm, a few I'm, others. He, he has an evolving view of war, but then weirdly enough, he makes War Horse not about World War II, but about World War One. And all of a sudden, it's this weird kind of halcyon, very nostalgic, picaresque adventure story Yeah, about a boy's relationship with an animal. It feels like Lassie. And mm-hmm. any version of Lassie, you know, the boring 50s sitcom or, you know, the, the better feature film from the sure, 2000s. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, it made me question as to what uh, Spielberg really thinks of war as a concept. Because he tend, he was going down a very particular path. He was actually starting to become very critical of war, particularly World War II. But then when he made a film about World War One, it became kind of fun and light again. I think I think it's I think you're onto something here, but I disagree about what he's getting at. Mm-hmm. Because Spielberg is a filmmaker who, like most filmmakers who make movies over, <laughs> sti- you okay? Yeah. Uh, like most filmmakers who make movies over extended periods of time, his attitudes and styles change and evolve. Yeah. Um. And you can see that, actually, if you look at his various war films. I think when you look at... I think it was... Sorry, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think his first war film was actually 1941. Mm. 1941 is a screwball comedy. I think it's a very ambitious and exciting screwball comedy. A lot of people hate it. A lot of people hate it. I think it's too accomplished and sort of astounding in its scope for it to be hateable. I appreciate it if you don't think it's particularly funny, but I think you're going to watch... The scene where there's a zoot suit riot, but it's also a musical number, not unlike <laughs> it, it's it's astoundingly filmed. 
You're going to watch that and you're going to go, wow. There's a, there's a Zoot Suit riot in 1941? Well, you know what I mean. There's people in Zoot Suits and they're in their, they're, they're, okay. they're dancing around. And then there's a, there's a big riot that breaks out because there's a big right. fight and it just explodes. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. I didn't mean a literal Zoot Suit riot. The, the, the Zoot Suit riot. No, no, right. I don't mean the literal Zoot Suit yeah. riots. I just mean people in Zoot Suits fight each other, but right. it turns into basically a big musical when, number. When was it? The Zoot Suit No, I guess they were in the 40s. I think that was they? about the, the right riots. time. Yeah. I don't think it's literally the, one, the historical event. But anyway... I just that's, looked it up. Yeah, the, the, the Zoot Suit Rights were in June of 1943, so it's yes. totally error appropriate. Yeah, yeah. I apologize. I thought they were a little later. No, no, it's fine. Um, anyway, my point is, uh, you know, his early World War II movie saw war as kind of a farce. Mm-hmm. And indeed, a lot of great war movies have seen war as a farce. Dr. Strangelove sees war as yeah, a farce. Yeah. War is ridiculous. And then he made Raiders of the Lost Ark, a movie that was about how war is, the World War II anyway, was pretty clean cut. The Nazis were bad. <laughs> like, boom. It's simple. Um, and then he made Empire of the Sun, which was a more mature work, mm-hmm. uh, which if you haven't seen it, it's underseen. People don't talk about it enough. Fucking awesome. I actually haven't seen Empire of the Sun. Empire either, of the yeah. Sun is awesome. So underappreciated. But it's about a kid in a POW camp um, in, I think I think he's in in China. But in anyway, he's, uh, it's, it's a kid in a POW camp. That's the movie. Mm. It's a more harrowing work in a lot of ways. It's not about war being fun. Mm-hmm. Then he did a couple more Indiana Jones movies where war was kind of fun again. And then he made Schindler's List where it was all about here, though, the actual atrocities of it. And then he did Saving Private Ryan, which was about how we're going to take the sort of John Wayne men on a mission kind of war story. But we're going to film it in such a way that the actual weight of the violence and the, the you know, the, the, the blood and the death. Yeah, yeah. The, I, that actually like hits you in a way that you don't get it when you see the super clean cut. You know, early 1940s, 1950s films. Um, so, and then he makes War Horse. And I think War Horse isn't so much about the war as it is about the war as a metaphor for war is like a sin. War is an mm-hmm. aberration. And the horse becomes, and the boy's relation to that horse becomes a symbol of purity that is strained and tested because of the stupidity and evils mm-hmm. of war. I actually don't yeah. like War Horse. I think it's way overplays its hand. Yeah. But I get well, the mentality behind it. I think I, that's I, what I, I picked that I out. Feel like, I feel like War Horse is something of a regression for Spielberg mm-hmm. because of its tone. It, yeah. it, it does modeling. It, it's it's sentimental in a way that he hadn't been for a little while, especially regarding war. I don't and think, the whole movie is sentimental, too. See, it's not like a couple of big overdone yeah. scenes. Like, the whole movie is overdone. Like, we do see, like, the atrocity of war, but we don't see really the atrocity of war. I think it's rated PG, War Horse. I don't think there's a lot of violence in it. I remember, um, I remember there being a pretty brutal scene with the horse there's, on the there's battlefield. There's a, a scene but... where the scene is running through the battlefield and it's like picking up the, the barricades and getting wrapped in barbed wire and that's kind of a, 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 a scary scene but yeah we don't like see people's heads explode. It's not like Hacksaw Ridge where no. you're just seeing like limbs it's getting It's definitely not off. that brutal. It's PG-13. Oh is it? Okay. Well, it's pretty good for it's pretty mild for a war movie mm. but still PG-13. So I, I feel like he was trying to take the edge off of war when he had already kind of explored that. A lot of filmmakers tend to view World War One mm. as a little bit more noble than World War Two. Well, also it, it it's further away in the past. Yep. There's you know a different kind of perspective on it. It feels a little bit more mythic the further back it goes. So my suggestion to you, like we, I, we look at the Battle of Thermopylae, and all of a sudden it's just it's a literal comic book. I, well, yeah. Uh, so mm. I said we actually aren't even done with your email yet. But uh, <laughs> my suggestion to you, if you're looking to finish those Steven Spielberg movies, I suggest watching his war movies in chronological order. Hmm. Not by war, but by when he made them. So I say go to 1941, 
then go to Empire of the Sun, mm. and then I think the next one on your list was War Horse. Yeah. I think you'll get an interesting sort of, here's Spielberg's attitudes and ideas about war yeah. and cinematic filmmaking evolving over time. And then just make sure you remember how Saving Private Ryan mm-hmm. and Raiders of the Lost Ark play in their space in that yeah. chronology. I think you'll get um, something out of that. The Color Purple is really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's a, a great uh, story of just sort of the, the perspective of uh, just sort of this country's relationship with slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, Amistad is about the same thing, but it's way cornier. It's it's overdone, I think, and, yeah. and kind of almost in the same way War Horse is, but its heart is so in the right place it's hard, that it, I can't really get it, mad at it. Its I heart just think is it in over- the right place, jammed deep into the right place, and then they get a tamping rod and jam it even deeper down into the right place. Oh, gosh, it's, it's so... It's one of the few Spielberg films oh, where I feel like John Williams is is not telling the story very well. I think he's pushing too hard. Everybody's like, pushing too hard, but like I think even like, John Williams every, is like every, killing it, every like in a third, bad way. Every third scene is is like a big speech, and yeah. it's, it's just like there's so good stuff overwrought. in it. There's good stuff in it, but it's mm-hmm. but it's overwrought. Uh, Close Encounters is phenomenal and really creative. <laughs> like I think if you put that out now, people will be like, "Wow, what a we- well, we- how did you you made a you made a giant epic alien first contact movie." About the dissolution of the American family and sound design? <laughs> That's it's a, weird. It's a weird picture. But it uh, works. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I love that movie. Uh, yeah, I guess Close Encounters, because that's a really kind of a technical experiment. Mm-hmm. And the other one you mentioned on your list, uh, The Adventures of Tintin, is another technical experiment. Mm-hmm. He was just sort of tinkering with digital tools. Yeah, I like Seeing it how he felt about it. I like it a lot. I think it's, uh, when you look at the two films he made kind of like that, that and Ready Player One, mm-hmm. uh, Tintin doesn't pretend it's about more than it is. It's just about the the technicals and the and yeah. very base adventure stuff. Yeah, it's not an it's not a complicated movie, and I think that frees it up to be. I think he, I think it's a little overbearing. I think he's trying too hard to entertain sometimes. Mm. But it's entertaining. I have a really good time with Tintin. So I, did, I, I, I really like that one a lot. I did like the scene. And it's all like motion capture and they're all digital. It's animated characters mm-hmm. and they're all done in motion capture. But uh, I appreciate Jamie, they're not going for photorealism. They're trying to make them look like a 3D version uh, of the comic. Kind of. Like, yeah. It's like yeah. photorealistic kind of. But they're yeah. like exaggerated features. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, Jamie Bell, I think, played Tintin in he that did. one in, in motion capture. Yeah. Uh, there's a really cute scene where he's in Paris and he gets his portrait done and it's the hair gay drawing of Tintin. And, and indeed, the guy who drew it is modeled after hair gay. Yeah. So. It's cute. That's really cute. There's really fun stuff in that movie. Uh, anyway, the Moving rest on. of your letter. <laughs> uh, now for my actual question on directing. Two of my favorite directors, not necessarily the best, but my favorites, okay. are Ridley Scott and Tony Scott. Interesting. Uh, Ridley Scott has put out far more, uh, is far more prolific and I had think his filmography as a whole is better than his brother's. However, he doesn't have a recognizable style or trademark. Uh, I can't tell just by watching this is a Ridley Scott film. Oh, I, I think I could. I think I'm familiar with his photography. Yeah, I think there's a few point, I think there's a yeah. few outliers. Yeah. yeah. On the flip side, his late brother has a very distinct style. I can watch a Tony Scott film for only a few minutes and say, oh, this is a Tony Scott movie. So is Ridley Scott a lesser director because he doesn't have a distinct style? Does a good director or an auteur have to have a distinct style? I look forward to thinking what you guys, uh, hearing what you guys think. I hope you both continue to do well, and I'm anxiously waiting to see what you do next. Sincerely, Robert. Uh, well, thank sh- you for writing in, Robert. Yeah, short answer. Uh, <coughs> waiting for Whitney. Still getting over that cold? Still, yeah, it's still... Sorry about that. It's lingering. All right, uh, short answer to that final question. Uh, no, 
director doesn't have to have a distinct mm-hmm. style. There are some chameleonic directors out there who can take on a wide variety of mm-hmm. different styles and do mm-hmm. really incredible work. Think of someone like Danny Boyle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Danny, perfect Danny example. Boyle, Danny Boyle can do, like, works in a lot of different styles. He can do, like, really bold and stylish and energetic, but he can mm-hmm. also do really subdued and natural. Like, you look at, like, you look at, like, um, I'm trying to think of, like, a handful of Danny Boyle films. You look mm-hmm. at, like, Train Spotting, but also 28 Days Later, mm-hmm. but also. Slumdog Millionaire, yeah. and he's a little fond of faster cutting than a lot of other filmmakers, but then he compared to something like Sunshine, which mm-hmm. is so measured. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he's, that's a really perfect example, mm-hmm. actually. And Ridley Scott, I do feel, is kind of the same way. I think he veers towards similar forms of cinematography, particularly later in his career. Yeah. Um, but he is, I think, more than anything else, he's a stylist. And he looks for whatever what, story he's... 100%. Wanted. I think he looks whatever story he's trying to tell... He looks for the most stylish way to do it. And he's an excellent enough craftsperson that he knows how to get the right cast, find the right production and costume designer, and everyone will do their job and will tell their story. And if mm-hmm. the story is good, Ridley Scott makes a classic. Uh, if, well, every tenth film or so, mm-hmm. and he'll, he'll, make, and he'll make a quite a good one. And he's prolific enough mm-hmm. that that's quite a few films at this point. Everything from uh, Alien to uh, Blade Runner to The Martian to Thelma and Louise. He's done enough genuinely classic, excellent motion pictures mm. that it makes up for the times when it really falls flat because all the style in the world can't save that script for Robin Hood. <laughs> that, Robin Hood that Robin Hood was, was, yeah. was a whole lot of nothing. Mm. You know, it just, it just did not work. Um, um, I, I'm actually not a big fan of Ridley Scott. Um, you've mentioned, uh, yeah. I... I, I uh, like I love Alien. Yeah, I think Alien is great. I love The Martian. Yep. Uh, I'm I'm fond of American Gangster. I should never seen American Gangster. Yeah, um, but a lot of films that a lot of people really like of his, I'm just not on board with. Like I I, I don't like Blade Runner. I think Blade mm. Runner is dull. Um, I disagree. I, I think its ideas are really adolescent and not explored fascinatingly. Mm. Um, and I think the the main character is just a, a big wad of cardboard. Uh, I, I, I'm also not very fond of Legend. I love the costumes in Legend. Yeah. The costumes are great. Have you seen the director's cut of Legend? I did. I have. Okay. You didn't think that was at least an improvement? I, I didn't notice much of a difference. I oh, think they're the so, same movie. No, it's dramatic. The yeah. score alone. Okay. The score alone yeah, the is mu- like... The music is good. The tangerine Dramatically stuff, improves yeah. that film, if you ask me. And yeah. it's, uh, the story is a little clearer as well. But I, yeah. I, think, I think... The interesting thing is Ridley Scott is one of those filmmakers who almost every director's cut he's ever put out is dramatically improved. The film, or, or very di- well, he, he can't stop mucking with his stuff. Like, but how many cuts of there are Blade Runner now? Like but the difference, but here's the thing with Blade Runner. Mm. Blade Runner did get taken away from him. Like yeah, he but, didn't want what they did to Blade. Runner. He didn't want what they did to Kingdom of Heaven. He didn't want what they did to Legend. Mm. His original ideas for all those films were maybe you disagree that they're classics, but they're better than what the studio put out. Maybe so. Maybe. So he, I, it keeps amazing me that he keeps I've, getting screwed over so many I've, times I've when seen, it's always a bad idea. I've seen three different cuts of Blade Runner. I'm not fond of any of them. Well, anyway, um. Tony Scott, though, you're right. I think when you look at the conventional idea of an auteur, a filmmaker who puts their stamp on everything that they do, even if they don't write it, Mm. uh, terminology that was invented basically in the 1950s to describe people working within the studio system who miraculously, given how those films were kind of churned out by a machine, every single time you saw a Hitchcock film, you could tell it was a Hitchcock film because he just had his own style. Um I think Tony Scott definitely had that. Everything from his perpetually smoky rooms (laughs) to his films that were almost uniformly about uh, masculinism. Mm. Uh, With a few notable exceptions. The hunger hunger is a definite exception to that. Uh, But mostly, Mm. 
Tony Scott films are very much from the groin. <laughs> and a lot of them are really good. I love a lot of Tony Scott movies. I love a lot of Tony Scott yeah. movies. But when he made a superficial film, it tended to be really annoying. Yeah. I, I think Tony Scott was better about finding what was in the screenplay and making that. Where I think Ridley Scott um, – I, I, com- I compare Ridley Scott to Tim Burton mm-hmm. uh, in that both of them only make films as good as the screenplays they're handed and they don't really delve into the material. They're just looking to do something fun and visual with what whatever they're given. Mm. Um, Tim Burton has admitted in interviews that he can't tell the difference between a good and a bad script. He's just going to shoot what's in his hand. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true of Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott is a little bit more thoughtful than Tim Burton, but I think uh, – in execution, his films are only as good as the screenplay. Hence, The Martian is an excellent film because that's an excellently written film. Yep. Um, I feel like Legend, less so. I feel like, I, I don't think Matchstick it's... Matchstick Men, less so. Body I, of Lies is bad. Eh, I think Body of Lies is okay, but regardless, mm. uh, I think that, I think it's not so much that Tony Scott was better at bringing out what's in a script. I think Tony Scott was better about knowing what he was good at and only picking a script that did that. Thing. That that's also fair. Because you look at think of like the films like let's go through like the last like handful of films mm. that Tony Scott made. Let's go through the films he made in the two thousands. Spy the- Game, very Tony Scott movie. <laughs> Man on Fire, maybe the ultimate Tony Scott movie. <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, to, to, to quote Joey Coco Diaz, is this as good as Man on Fire? No, fuck that movie. Right. Uh, <laughs> Domino, very Tony Scott movie. Mm. Deja Vu. Oh, I hate Domino. <laughs> I, Domino doesn't work. It's I think bonkers. Dom- Domino is crazy. edited with. I think Domino is edited mm. too chaotically and, to and work. Then, and then they take drugs and wander out into the wilderness. Didn't Richard and, Kelly write that. I think it's a Richard Kelly joint. Weird. Yeah. Uh, Domino takes drugs, goes out into the desert with her paramour, and they meet Tom Waits, who is just out there. It's <laughs> just so there weird, in the desert. Uh, Deja Vu, which is a really astoundingly clever time travel thriller, mm. but it's very much a uh, from the gut, you know, macho time travel thriller. Taking a Pelham One Two Three, mm. a bad remake, but totally a Tony Scott joint, and then finally Unstoppable about a big giant run, penis on rails, run, run, runaway, runaway, I mean train, train, yeah, yeah. and about Not two dudes. Pe- Can these two dudes get along well enough to stop this penis? <laughs> <laughs> Can we stop our penis? I don't know. Like he knew the what subtext. he was doing. Oh god, the subtext. He knew what he was doing. Mm. He knew what he was doing. Actually, one of my one of the most interesting films I think in Ridley Scott's filmography is Black Rain, just because it feels like a Tony Scott script that went to the wrong director. <laughs> Black Rain's so a Tony Scott movie, yeah. but Ridley Scott directed it. It's super weird. Weird. Yeah. Um anyway, uh but no, back to your point. Uh we have cats. Cats are very uh, uh, very sense. very opinionated. About Ridley Scott and Tony Scott. Uh, but uh, Ridley, Ridley Scott should have made Sleepwalkers. But back to your point, no, you don't need to have a distinctive style to be an auteur or to be a great director. Anyway, another letter? Let's do uh, at, least, at least one more. Uh, here's a letter from Oscar. Oh, hello, Oscar. Uh, uh, greetings, guys. I'm writing this letter hoping that this grammar app works. <laughs> I'm from Mexico, and my English is adequate at best. Well, greetings, Mexico. So far, it's doing a good job. Um, Bienvenidos. Um, I've been listening to your various shows for a couple of years now, and I find your opinions very entertaining and informative, but I have always been curious about something. What do you think about Mexican cinema? We mainly consume American movies down here, but there is also some nice Mexican filmmaking from time to time, and in the past, there have been some very important films produced in my country, or I think so at least. Also, who are some of your favorite Mexican directors and actors? I feel like there are more and more fellow Mexicans working in Hollywood every year. Uh, with nothing more to add, I send you a hug from Mexico where good people and bad government collide. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you can Oscar, say it. Yeah. Um, I, I have no 
strong opinion about it. Um, <laughs> but, but Mexican government. Yeah. Um, uh, here in the States, uh, in the early 2000s, there was a great boom, a kind of a new wave of Mexican cinema that invaded uh, mm-hmm. in the forms of uh, Iñárritu. Quaron, uh, Quaron, um, uh, and Del Toro, and Del Toro. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the th- I think they called them like the three brothers. These uh, three, three. Me- I, they're frequently called the three amigos. The three, but- yeah, they, uh, they were sort of like this new voice in Mexican cinema that was suddenly a huge, very suddenly a huge pre- uh, presence in America. And they've all won Academy mm-hmm. Awards for Best Director within the last decade. And in yeah. fact, Inarritu won twice in a row, two years. Yeah, in a row. Th- not two Best Picture winners in a row, but damn, that's good regardless. <laughs> Um, so and they're, and they're great filmmakers. Yeah, they're all um, great filmmakers. I'm not the biggest fan of Inarritu. Um, I, I, think I liked Birdman. Uh, wasn't as, as big a fan of The Revenant, although I think The Revenant is fine. I, I, I like uh, Revenant better than Birdman. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think some of his early stuff, mm-hmm. his early melodramas, were I, pushing I, it. Like Beautiful, mm-hmm. I think is a bad film. Beautiful is just quite bad. And yeah. uh, and I'm um, and 21 Grams, I think, is just maudlin. But, uh, in a, in I, I didn't way. see Amores Peros. Um, uh, I, I did see uh, Itumama Tambien. Um, I like Cuaron. I actually... I love Cuaron. I love brilliant. I started paying attention uh, to Cuaron when he made A Little Princess back in the mid-90s. Oh, that's such a good movie. That's a really good film. And yeah, that was one, is. like, even though I was still in high school at the time, I was, I guess, sort of a proto... Film critic already, <laughs> just sort of trying to get all of my you know teenage male friends to go see a little princess. And of course, when you're a teenage male, you're not going to go see a film like a little princess. You're too cool for that sort of thing. Um. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of the the most experience a lot of Americans have with Mexican cinema is this more recent wave of it. Uh, going back, uh, Mexican cinema would usually only make its way onto uh, American TV. Yeah, we got a lot of like, American TV. Uh, in, on, like, UHF stations, like public uh, mm-hmm. access TV stations. Yeah. So that's where I got to see little bits and pieces of stuff like Content Floss movies yeah. or, or, uh, or like, uh, luchador films. These things would be on TV a lot. And uh, sometimes they wouldn't even be subtitled. They'd just be in Spanish. So I'm watching a lot of these movies, just getting a, a, this... Uh, kind of scattershot sense as to what Mexican cinema was. Yeah. I got a lot of energy from Mexican cinema. I got a lot of humor from Mexican cinema, even if I didn't understand the jokes. And of course, when you tune in, you see a luchador fighting a monster. You, know, you don't need translation to understand what's going on. No, that's El, pretty El, clear. El Santo is kicking the mummy's ass. I understand that. I'm, I'm eight and I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, unfortunately, like deep dives into Mexican cinema history, uh, is usually only in the purview of like film experts because they're just a lot of Mexican mm. cinema doesn't make it into mainstream mm. uh, cinemas or even art house cinemas, and they yeah. haven't. For like, I grew up in Pasadena, California, uh, which uh, for when I was growing up, it's different now. But when I was growing up, Pasadena was second only to New York City in the number of independent movie theaters they had in one city. <laughs> yeah, we had like a solid <laughs> dozen different independent movie theaters, and they were all thriving. And it was great. A lot of them were on the same street, too. You could just walk from one to the other in a couple of blocks, and it was wonderful. Mm. Um, but even then, we get a lot of uh, films from different countries. We didn't get a lot of Mexican movies. Hmm. Um, and that sucks. Yeah. And I'm keenly aware that uh, my knowledge of a lot of international cinema is a little lacking. Some less so than others. I know a fair amount about Japanese cinema and Hong Kong cinema and uh, French and so on mm. and so forth. But 
a lot of other places, I'm not as well-versed. And mm. I'm not going to pretend to be any sort of expert. I have seen some films, mostly the ones that mm. Whitney has already discussed and described. Um, and I'm a fan of a lot of the films and filmmakers and uh, actors from Mexico that I have seen. But mm. I am nowhere near an expert, and I cannot pretend to be. Um, Content Floss was great. Yeah. Uh, I grew up uh, worshipping Ricardo Montalban, <laughs> uh, who was really ahead of his time in terms of how accepted he was yeah. in Hollywood. And so he would end up starring in like mainstream film noirs in the 50s, like Mystery Street. <laughs> if you've never seen Mystery Street, mm. just, just check it out. It's actually a perfect, yeah. uh, perfect time for it, too, because we're in the middle of Noir-vember. Yeah. This unofficial mm. like film Twitter holiday where we all celebrate film noirs for a month. <laughs> Um, and Mystery Street's a really good one. Ricardo Montalban is trying to solve a murder, and it's one of the first Hollywood movies to look into modern, then-modern CSI investigation techniques and actually use oh, the science of criminal mm-hmm. investigation to drive a story, yeah. in addition to just being a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Montalban's a personal fave. Mm-hmm. Um Grew up watching Salma Hayek movies, obviously. She's always yeah, a big r- breakout over here. Well, Robert Rodriguez in general. Yeah, I, don't, I, think yeah. I, I don't think he introduced me to Salma Hayek, but regardless, mm. um, she's great. Was Anthony Quinn? Anthony Quinn was Mexican, wasn't he? Um, I feel like, I mean, there's some people, like, I know Ricardo Montalban has some, uh, like, yeah. some Spanish origins well, as well. Um, I know um, a uh, lot No, of... Anthony Quinn was, was American, so, yeah, uh, yeah okay. F- officially American, so uh, officially. I apologize. <laughs> but uh, I... Uh... I also saw a lot of films that were made in Mexico, but by sort of generally international directors. Like yeah. Bun- some Bunuel made a few films in Mexico, but he's not Mexican. He's, yeah, uh, perfect example. Yeah. He also made films in French. You know, he made a, a lot of films all around the world. Same with um, Alejandro Jodorowsky, is uh, not Mexican, but he made films in Mexico. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I'm not sure how much those like necessarily count as part of the Mexican cinema tradition. Yeah, like uh, because we, they're made by international directors. Like on the, on the other hand, like if an international director comes to America and makes mm. an American movie, we're quick to say like, yeah, Hitchcock he made American movies. He's mm. British. <laughs> He's a British filmmaker. I mean, he might have he might have mm. gotten his American citizenship. I don't know, but. Technically it's British, like, so Wong, Wong Kar Wai made a movie in English, but you know, he's, make an not, English he's not film, an American like, director. Yeah, mm. then we get into some gray areas, and it's hard to say. Suffice it to say, short answer after a very long muddle, <laughs> um, we've admired what we've seen of Mexican cinema, but neither Whitney or I would ever pretend to be an expert. Mm. Uh, and frankly, we have a lot of learning to do, yeah, and it's one of the reasons why. We try to give ourselves these assignments, these long, complicated assignments in which we try to explore an entire thing, mm-hmm. an entire franchise, or we're doing every single Best Picture nominee ever, or every single episode of Star Trek ever, is because it motivates us to increase our knowledge of something that we were not necessarily that familiar with before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Whitney and I could both confidently say we'd seen a lot of Best Picture nominees, but... Even just going out of our way to explore every single Best Picture nominee from the 30s has completely widened my horizons about cinema from the 1930s. Yeah. And I'd seen a lot of films. Mm. But I hadn't had an excuse to do a deep dive into 1930s film in a while. Mm. So now I do. And it's actually been really revelatory and awesome. (laughs) So what we should do at some point is, I I don't know when we're going to find the time for this, maybe next year. But let's maybe try to come up with some sort of project you and I can do where we explore cinema of different uh, countries. 
mm-hmm. that we haven't explored before or, not, or enough. We should do like like month by month, country by country. Yeah, like like, like one month where we try to do, do at just least Brazilian cinema. Yeah, this month we try to yeah. do Italian. Well, like there's maybe certain, avoid the most obvious ones. Yeah, there, that we've there's already cer- certain with. countries that a we're familiar with and b were very prolific and and, uh, and a lot of the movies came to America, yeah, so it's yeah, less so. strange. But like we should totally film, film schools or not. But yeah, we yeah. Should, like uh, around. like there's there's the entire film industry of the entire continent of Africa uh, is really unknown. To most American, to, to audience most American and, audiences. And most American yeah. critics, honestly. So that would be a really mm. good idea to maybe do like some sort of ancillary Patreon thing where we try to do one month mm. a handful of acclaimed or popular films from a country whose cinema we are not super familiar with. And we will fully admit right up front, we're not going to be experts in this. We're trying to learn. Yeah. And maybe you can learn along with us. Because mm. I think that's a really good idea. Do a little bit of a sociological exercise. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. And then maybe we can try to bring in, if we if we know anybody, uh, critics who are more familiar with films of that uh, region. Yeah. And they can lend their expertise and help guide us through and answer some of our questions. Yeah. If we can do this, if we can put that together, <laughs> I think it's a really good idea. So mm-hmm. we'll see what we can do. Let us know if you'd like that. That's something else, some, an, an exploration of the world via its cinema. And, and granted, listen, we're we're two white American film critics. Mm. Maybe we should. Maybe we should let other people do that. Maybe that. But we're interested, and we do want to learn. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's there's an argument to be made. But anyway, uh, uh, let's one, do one more. One more letter, and this is actually on topic. Uh, this one comes from Francisco. Uh, hello, Biz and Whitney. I've been a fan of you for quite a while. I love how you think and talk about cinema. I always really appreciate your thoughts on films, even if I disagree with you guys. I'm glad that a lot of people who disagree with us continue to listen. That's that means very, a lot to very us. Refreshing. Thank you for that. Yeah. My question is about the inclusion or lack thereof of international cinema and American film awards shows such as the Oscars. Ah, uh, good segue. Yeah. Did you plan that? No, this is All just right. uh, also on topic. Every Weird. year I see mediocre and uninspiring movies. I know it's objective, but still, such as Green Book, Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody, mm-hmm. and The Post. Well, I, take, I like The Post. I take but issue fair with enough. The Post. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Generally speaking, yeah. Uh, movies that don't really challenge you and are extremely conventional and buy the book and get nominated for prestigious awards such as Best Picture, whilst graced international films uh, such as last year's Palm Door winner Shoplifters and Lee Chang Dong's Burning mm-hmm. don't get rec- the recognition they deserve. I've come to a point where I sincerely believe that the Cannes Film Festival is a more prestigious award show than the Oscars and should be the one that there's taken more seriously by film fans. A little late, but I got there. Uh, um, yeah. 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 <laughs> and even Cannes has problems. Yeah. Even Cannes doesn't have Can nearly is... enough female filmmakers, for example, who are mm-hmm. participating or allowed to participate in that competition. It has problems, but they uh, they focus exclusively mm-hmm. on more interesting films than usually make it into the Oscars. Yeah. That's totally true. Uh, I wouldn't be so upset about this if the Oscars would just come out and proclaim their bias toward American films and accept that they are an American film award show. But the fact that they have the best international film category is so condescending toward international creators and, in my opinion, insinuates that they believe these somehow create lesser art than American ones. Now, uh, stopping for a second, to be fair, uh, the Academy Awards is an American award show. Yeah, there's a it's reason. It's put up by the American Motion Picture Association. Right. Um, uh, and, and and this would, is also why they have an award for best foreign language film. The language that they don't include is English. And, in fact, hmm. there's a film from... Is it Nigeria that just got disqualified? Because oh, I think, it's a, yeah. It was, it, there was too much English. Well, it got disqualified because it was too much English, but the national language of the country was English. Oh, that's that's. And people fair. are like, okay, technically, yes, that's not the rules, but we're not talking about letting a British film in. We're talking mm. about 
Like, there's the letter of the law and the spirit, and you're clearly breaking the spirit. Yeah. So hmm. that's a thing. That that no. that that's a that's an issue. But uh, Francisco goes on to say, creators are creators. It doesn't matter what country they are from. But I would argue that currently, foreign directors have as much, if maybe even a little more, to offer, just because they're not restricted by the Hollywood machinery. Hmm. Uh, however, it does make me happy to see a film like Parasite get the attention it deserves. Do you think a Best Picture nominee, nominee and a win for it would change how the Oscars perceive foreign filmmaking and pave the way for future nominations and wins for more foreign films? Side question, have you seen Burning? What do you think? I think it's a masterpiece. I haven't seen Burning. Still haven't seen, haven't Burning. seen Burning. I know. It came and went last yeah. year and we missed it. Uh, thank you much for all you do. You guys are awesome. Uh, from your number one Portuguese fan, fr- uh, Francisco. Um, um, I agree with you. Yes, on, on generally the fact speaking, that, yeah. um, I mean, we're in America, and we tend to focus on our own film industry. Yeah. The fact that we also have the biggest film industry in the world, I think maybe second to Bollywood, uh, mm, depending it, on the metric. And yeah, uh, depending is, on how you define that, yeah. Uh, is is also part of this. You know, we, we are churning out this huge amount of gigantic commercial content that is, of course, going all over the world and making the huge amounts of money. Right. I think the uh, only non-American film to be in the top ten of earners this year was uh, The Wandering Earth. Yeah, it was um, huge. It was hu- huge overseas. Uh, but yeah, it was like just sort of unceremoniously dumped onto Netflix in America. Yeah, because you know why? Hmm. Competition. There's mm-hmm. a long. There's a lot of theories actually that uh, when the Weinstein companies used to, uh, or, or I think Miramax and then Weinstein, but mm. they used to buy up a lot of action movie product, particularly from Hong Kong or, or that general uh, region. Mm. And then specifically never release it hmm. or only release it cut and mangled. And there was a lot of uh, hemming and hawing from fans of that genre that was arguing, and I don't necessarily think they're wrong, that they were worried that if Americans saw what good action movies looked like... <laughs> they wouldn't see the American They wouldn't want to see the American ones. And so occasionally something would come in and break out, but there was always sort of screwed with. Like yeah. the, 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 it was badly dubbed or something along those lines. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. I think there's fascinating work being done all over the world. Yeah. I, and I, I think, think it, that it, it's overdue to get more attention yeah. at the Oscars because the Oscars do allow films from other countries to be nominated in other categories besides Best Foreign Language Film, and they do all the time. Mm. Uh, Roma. Perfect yeah, example. Roma, um, Il Postino. It's really rare that uh, films from other countries are nominated for Best Picture. It's happened. But yeah. Roma and uh, Il Postino. Mm. I would not be surprised if Parasite gets nominated. It, it might. It's I, got a lot of clout. It's hugely I, successful. And there's still, um, and there's still uh, up to ten nominees that yeah. can be every single year. I think Parasite has the clout and the respect and, frankly, the financial success. It's an enormously successful independent film. Uh that I think it'll probably squeak into the nominees. I hope Bong Joon-ho gets nominated for Best Director as well. Mm. I think that would be a, a, a real message. Um, I don't think it can win. No. But maybe. Uh, who knows? Maybe. Uh, I, I, honestly, I don't know. I, I, I try here's... not to think about the Oscars too much this year. I don't know if we have a front runner yet. I don't know if we have no. one well, film that, like, maybe the, Jojo Rabbit, but I don't know. It's kind of weird. We've been saying for many years now that the, the Academy Awards, even though it says Best Picture, is no real barometer for what the actual Best Picture of the film is. Totally. Uh, well, film of the year is, excuse me. Um, I said Picture of the Film. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, we usually rely on, uh, like, cut, 
just comparing and contrasting various critical lists. You know, what won Palme d'Or, but also what did Cahiers du Cinema say, or what does the mm-hmm. Village Voice have to? Well, not the Village Voice anymore, but uh, <laughs> you know, these various outlets have to say about sort of you know IndieWire. What are what are they putting out there? You know, what what's being talked about the most in sort of the general conversation about the best films of the year? Right. When you pay attention to all of the circles sort of combined, you do see a lot of international fare. But that's the critics' bodies. Mm. Uh, when you talk about just sort of what general audience is in America see, access to foreign language film isn't as wide as, as English language films. Mm-hmm. Uh, this goes to actually a larger cultural problem in America, which is our general ignorance of the rest of the world. Which uh, we were I, just talking about just in talking our own about, personal yeah. terms. I, 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 we don't know the, the cinema of Mexico as well as perhaps we ought uh, we haven't done that much study on it just because we're in America and we're Americans and we study American film for the most part. It's it's the default because it's what we have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that's right, but it's the default. But I, I learned this as a teenager, actually, because I got to uh, live abroad for uh, half a year when I was 15. And you go around to other countries and you realize that I was in Europe for most of it, but I was also uh, like in Israel and I was in uh, Cairo for a little bit. That generally speaking... And this was just my impression of what I got when I was 15, back in the mid-90s. International audiences are far more culturally aware of what's going on in the rest of the world. Whereas America is very sealed off. Yep. Uh, in many uh, European nations, kids are required to learn multiple languages. They're, yep. they're encouraged to be multilingual. Uh, sometimes three, four, five languages. Kids can learn that because that's just part of their education. Well, and they're taught young enough mm. that they don't, haven't like mm. solidified their uh, communication capacity. Yeah, yeah, like, you can learn a language at any time in your life, but it's easier when you're very, very young and mm. you're not already thinking of yourself as, well, I know English so well, I feel like I feel less intelligent mm. when I speak in this other language. I'm only just learning because my vocabulary isn't very good. Yeah. So, yeah, when you're a kid, that's the time. That's the perfect <laughs> time to learn multiple so languages. Like, Do it. I'm going to Japan in a couple of years. I got to learn Japanese. It's going to be tough. I know very little about Japanese. You're going to Japan a couple of years? Just on a trip. Good for you. Yeah. Pl- awesome. Planning a big vacation. That's amazing. Uh, I-, I can say, uh, Watashi wa kabocha desu ka, which means I am a pumpkin. Uh, when will that come up? Uh, more commonly than you'd think. Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> Touche, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, here in America, there's a lot more sort of uh, cultural protection, to put it politely. Ignorance, to put ignorance it a little bit more plainly. More accurate, yeah. um, willful ignorance. Willful, of, willful, I mean, willful ignorance well, about speak, sort of the rest of the world. Trying it, to, it speaks a lot to a lot of the issues we're having with like people are talking about how like Disney is crowding non-Disney films out of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Wherein what is available is all most people are going to get. Most people aren't going out of their way yeah. to seek out movies that aren't readily available to them because they're not necessarily inclined to scour because mm-hmm. they're not film critics or they're not so, yeah, super film fans. And so what is available is all they got, which is why making what is available broader and more inclusive and mm-hmm. more international and less focused on putting the Avengers on eight screens at your multiplex and more about filling those screens with other opportunities so that people have growing and evolving mm-hmm. and broader tastes, that matters a lot. Yeah. If, if there were... As many screens today as there were in, say, 1998, which was kind of like the height of, I think, movie theaters being open. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Uh, I'm not, not exactly sure what the figures are, but, you know, yeah. um, 
before theaters just started collapsing in the mid 2000s. Yeah. Like there was this, like around 2008, there was just this mass shuttering of theaters across the nation. Everybody was very distressed. People in our profession were very yeah. distressed because we knew there were going to be fewer opportunities. And now one gigantic company owns the lion's share of entertainment. And they're not a company that's interested in giving us a huge variety of films. Exactly. Uh, and they're not interested in... Uh, leaving space for anyone else. For, well, leaving space for international cinema, for letting other companies that don't have distribution access in America, distribution access in America. Um, and I hate, they're, the, they're and I hate little, the defense that's just like, well, of course they want to make money. That doesn't make it right. Ethics they can ma- belong in capitalism. Well, also, they can make money. There's an audience for this stuff. They're, they're just sort of ignoring it because they're not a big enough audience is, yeah, kind of unethical. Yeah. Uh, there were and and it's not because it's necessarily just Disney. There were a lot of like B movie houses. Like Roger Corman made a good deal of money. You know, he made these like cheapy monster films and these crappy westerns and little shops of horrors and you know, films he shot in two days for fifty dollars. And he would brag about that he shot in two days for fifty dollars. But then he would also buy up Bergman films that didn't have an audience anywhere else and distribute them and make a mint. There's a reason because there were people aching for that kind of stuff. The reason why Roger Corman has an honorary Academy Award isn't so much that he directed It Conquered the World. <laughs> or even the good movies he made. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 because he had A, he he helped grandfather in or, or, or foster the talent of young filmmakers, but it was mostly because he was savvy enough and he cared enough to his credit. Mm-hmm. To introduce Americans to films from other cultures that just weren't being distributed here, mm-hmm. that opened up a lot of doors. That opened up a lot of doors, not just for those filmmakers, but also for audiences mm-hmm. who had been given a lot of Hollywood pablum. And all of a sudden, they have an opportunity to see Wild Strawberries or whatever. I don't know specifically which films he released. Mm-hmm. That's something that really allows us to expand. Is the cause this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately? Is um, and I know we got off on the Disney tangent, but it's it's <laughs> it's, it's so important. It really needs to be, be such discussed. A, they're so present in in the but the like, landscape right now. But, but but it goes to the larger American mentality of we're only interested in the stuff we already know we're interested in. Mm. No, we're not. Which is why every time something new comes along and it blows our mind and it becomes the new thing that Hollywood gloms onto and homogenizes. It's such a big fucking deal mm. because someone took a risk on something and introduced it. And now all of a sudden, everyone's ripping that. The Matrix was a big gamble. Mm-hmm. It was a weird, relatively low budget action movie starring Keanu Reeves, who was not a huge movie star at the time. I mean, he was pretty big. He was okay, but he wasn't really opening films. It was starting at the same time he was doing The Watcher. You know, like he wasn't like <laughs> fair. He wasn't so the like, watcher was the next year, chain yeah, reaction yeah. wasn't a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. like that's the, he was not a guaranteed surefire box. They asked Will Smith. Will Smith said no. Mm-hmm. Kenny Reeves was like their third or fourth pick. Like that was where, where they were at. So like it would have been a much different film with Will Smith. Would have been much, yeah. probably would have been good, but it would have yeah. been a much different film. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, I digress. When movies come out of nowhere and surprise us, that's when. Everything changes and shifts. So I'm super excited about how Marvel is the institution, and I like a lot of those movies. Mm -hmm. And so is DC and all the other, but like the mainstream shit is the institution now. It used to be counterculture, now it's culture. 
What is going to rise up in opposition to that? Yeah. What's the bold, independent, <laughs> what's, what weird? Is, what's the next easy writer? What's, what's the yeah, thing? What's, what's the next punk rock? What's really yeah. going to take this stuff down culturally? I um, cannot what's the fucking ne- wait to see what that is. And then I can't wait to see that go totally corporate. Oh, and then I can't wait to see <laughs> the thing that has to rise up to stop that shit just wanna, from I'd, dominating the multiplexes. I'd love, to see, I'd love to have a t-shirt that says, awaiting the next irony. Uh, yeah, just, what, <laughs> what, good, what's actually. the next irony? Um, it's pretty good. Yeah, and there's an audience out there for it. There's a, a you know, probably bored teens who are seeking some kind of counterculture, and we're waiting for that to come up. And uh, I've, I've said this for years in response to a lot of people who uh, they come out of like a, a superhero film or some sort of action blockbuster, and they say that's that's the Wolverine film I've always wanted. Uh-huh. That's the blockbuster I've always wanted. I always wanted to see these characters do that, and they did it, and I loved it. I've always wanted to see Luke Skywalker do X, and now he finally did it. Right. That's what I've always wanted. You know what I want? Something I didn't know I wanted. Yeah. I want to be... I want to be given something that I didn't know I couldn't live without. There's so much fan service now. Mm. I've gotten most of what I asked for. <laughs> I've gotten most of it. Like, there's a few things left that I would still be kind of stoked like, by. But, like, 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 if they ever did, like, Ash versus Freddy versus Jason, <laughs> I would still be pretty stoked. I'd be like, okay, you know what? I, I don't, I'm a fanboy again. This one I'm stoked for. No, we all be, is, we all get a couple of exceptions. This is not 32 year old Bruce Campbell though. It'd be I, Bruce Campbell today. I still want it. Right. I still, I would still pay money to see that. Like mm. I would still be stoked. Like, there's a handful of things mm. never that, got. That would fan be service would still. I would indeed be excited by. A little bit. I okay. would still be excited by. But for the most part, yeah, I'm at that point where. I keep forgetting a new Star Wars movie is coming out. And I know I'm in in a couple months, isn't it? One month! It's it's next month. (laughs) That's my point. Like, that's the thing. Like, you and I, we are not on the typical wavelength there. A lot of people are super mega stoked about it. That's fine, by the way. We're not decrying that at all. But, like, we reach a point after a while when you've been, like, catered to... It's like that Twilight Zone episode about a guy who dies and he goes to heaven and he everywhere he gambles he wins and he quickly realizes that's actually hell. Like lo- like the the one win amongst a streak of losing is what he really wanted. Yeah, that's the that's the thrill. The time, but yeah. winning all the time is actually very boring, and that's kind of where I am at with like comic booky kind of movies running popular culture. Like, there's still some cool stuff. Like, I'm actually like knock it off, cats. Like, <laughs> I'm still like you know, Doctor Strange is going to the multiverse. Part of me is just like, oh, that's neat. We haven't done that yet. Okay, that one mm. I'm a little excited by. Mm. But like most of the upcoming Marvel movies, I'm like, okay. Uh, uh, some of them will be good. It's, it's cool. I just I I could also not get those movies yeah, and, some, and probably be fine. You uh, know, and some I'm not. I'm a little unclear as to whether they're movies or TV series. Well, you just like haven't a, paying close attention on that. Uh, well, because I don't really care. Well, but, I'm just uh, saying. Like that's that's uh, been made clear. I think. But uh, okay. Like, uh, is She Hulk a movie or a TV series? TV series. Okay, and. I know the uh, the Captain America spinoff characters. They're their own TV series. Oh, yeah, yeah. Falcon and, and, uh, and Snowman. Falcon and the Snowman. Whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> Falcon, Falcon and Winter Soldier. They're, and the getting, win- their they're getting their own TV Winter, show. Just call it the Falcon and the Snowman. I know. <laughs> Winter Soldier. Close enough, right? Uh, kind of. Actually, yeah. shit. <laughs> shit, you're right. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's what they've been trying to do. Yeah, remember those, those 70s thrillers? Yeah. Oh, well, then if you don't remember, then you should watch this and pretend like you did. Yeah. Uh... But yeah, then there's there's like another Thor film. Mm-hmm. That would be kind of fun because mm-hmm. R- R- Natalie Portman gets a star in that one. I'm, that one I'm kind of looking forward to. God, also, fun. Taika Waititi's back, so he made it. Oh, own. there you go. That would so, be kind of fun. That's kind of neat. Yeah, uh, but yeah, Doctor, another Doctor Strange. There's an Eternals Thor. movie, which I honestly yeah. so vaguely aware of the Eternals. I don't know why that's even different than the Inhumans. Yeah. 
Um, there's a character, uh, is it Chengdu? I don't know Chengdu, the character. Shang-Chi. 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 I don't know Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi was uh, one of Marvel's sort of responses to the popularity of Bruce Lee. Okay. I think it might have predated that, but then it became back with Bruce Lee. But hmm. in any case, um, perfectly fine character. I like the actor uh, they got playing him. He's hmm. on um, a show called Kim's Convenience, which I'm very fond of. Oh, okay. So that's he's he's cool, and hmm. I follow him on Twitter, and he seems nice, yeah. so that's nice. Um, so I'm kind of stoked about that, but that's, again, I don't know how much how stoked hmm. they should be, other than yeah, right. it will exist and maybe it'll be good. We're, we're off topic. But uh, like, more, more international Way cinema. off topic. Yeah. <laughs> way off topic. Sorry, big tangent that this happens. Uh, we need more international cinema in the theaters. We need more international cinema to be appreciated by not just awards bodies, but also by critics. And, I think and, it's also relevant. And, There's and, a lot of critics yeah. out there that people go to, especially on like YouTube, who are younger and kind of only chasing the movies that they know their fans are aware of. Mm. And they're very rarely raising awareness of films that aren't playing on thousands of screens. And yeah. we need more of that. So that's that's on us. Yeah. That's on the people who and frankly, it's on audiences. You know, it's we need to if you're an audience member and you want to see more of these films, you gotta seek out the ones you whatever ones you can find and you gotta yeah. pay for them. So that people know that there's an audience for that, and then maybe they'll yeah. show more. That We do have responsibility on every level. Distributors have responsibility. Producers have responsibility. The Oscars have responsibility. The mm. film critics have responsibility. The audience has a responsibility. Mm. Everyone has a responsibility yeah, if we want to change the industry. We, one one yeah, group can't do it. We, and we can't. We can change the landscape because they'll just respond to what we respond to. It's, yeah. It's, it's, and, it's, it's, and it's changed before. Symbiosis. 20 years ago, superhero movies, non-starter. Mm. Non-starter. Like, we had a couple of okay hits other than Batman and Superman. Nothing was breaking out. Mm. Uh, it, apart lands, from Batman and Superman, but like those huge hits. But, but those uh, were considered exceptions mm. because they were, like, institutions. But Spider-Man was considered a huge risk. Mm. Blade was still a minor hit. Like, it wasn't a huge blockbuster. Mm. Like It was made Spawn, for a low budget. That yes, helped. Spawn tanked, like, mm. Green Arrow, or not Green Arrow, um... Uh, uh, not the green one. Uh, the shadow, the shadow, green arrow, green hair. They're, they're all they're all similar, but like, yeah. yeah, a lot of those attempts to make superhero movies, they weren't hitting. Mm. Even the good ones, Rocketeer was amazing, didn't hit. It took a whole bunch of people taking a chance on it and changing their viewing habits and, and, and their and producing habits and distributing habits to the change the industry. And, and when we do, we do it. Habits, but, yeah. but regardless, but yeah. it worked. Mm. So it can happen again. It happens every few decades. I look forward to the next thing. Mm. Anyway, moving on. Uh, that is it for. We've got mail. Uh, we'll be back next week with more mail. Continue to write in. It is uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we will, uh, we're trying to get to all of them. We're catching up. Uh, I've been sort of alternating between the more recent arrivals and things from a couple months ago. Yeah. But we are catching up. Uh, we appreciate when you write in. You can write us, as William said, it doesn't even have to be film related. We tend to talk a rant about films. That, that's, that's our expertise. And go, and go on tangents about that. films. But yeah, we can go on about anything you like. Luke, what did uh, you, can, what did you, you can, have for dinner last you night? You can yell at us. You can yell with us. You can mm. uh, take exception with what we say. Uh, whatever it is, we want to hear from you. Please. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email. That's right. Uh, you can also follow us at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, stick around because we got more good stuff this week. Uh, we're going to have an episode of Cancel Too Soon about the animated series Tuca and Birdie. We're going to have upcoming movie reviews on Critically Acclaimed and over at Patreon. Uh, we're, we're trying to catch up. We have a ton of content we're trying to produce for you guys. Mm. So uh, stick around because we got some cool stuff coming over there. That's patreon.com slash critic acclaim. That's going to change in just a couple of days, though. So stick around and we'll send you the new link. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.